Hey everyone, this is Sam, your host of The Clinical Consult. Before we get started today, I want to invite you all to leave a comment, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Your feedback matters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marcus Brower. Dr. Brower is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is also the executive director of the Institute for Diversity Science. He conducts both basic and applied research on diversity, equity, and inclusion. His research aims to develop and test interventions to get people to behave in a more inclusive manner. He also studies structural changes that enhance the success and sense of belonging of members of marginalized groups in educational and organizational settings. Thank you so much for being here, Marcus, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you and I both know this. The audience isn't going to know this, but I had an opportunity to hear you speak at this year's Wisconsin Psychological Association Conference. And I got to be honest, when I looked at the the schedule of events and speakers, I saw your name and I I didn't know your name. And frankly, that's my that's my siloing, if you will, if anything. You know, I was like, okay, who is this person? Dr. Marcus Brower and and he's going to be talking about diversity science. Another thing that wow, I feel so siloed because I'm a psychologist as well, and I'm, I've been in the field now for like 10 years, uh, you know, went to graduate school, been practicing, and yet, how, how, how have I not heard this phrase or this term, diversity science? I felt really kind of naive or uh, ignorant in this moment, and I didn't even know what I was going to get when I ended up entering. I thought I was going to get another diversity training. That's what I was expecting, and so all of a sudden... When I join the the room and I hear you're speaking, I'm I'm blown away. And so I re- I'm so excited that you're here today to talk a little bit about your work and what this means from an evidence-based perspective of applying these skills to to really engage in some pretty radical change. Um, so yeah, thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. It's very yeah. exciting. Yes, I think diversity science is a new, young, incredibly exciting field of investigation. Uh, I think it's the new frontier in the social and behavioral sciences. Um, I think it will change the way how we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, If I sort of um, think about the history of how diversity work came along, I always say there's sort of three phases. One was the civil rights movement, and and here the goal was political activism, creating creating the political will, will, but also the the widespread support in the general public for for new legislation, anti-discrimination legislation. And then came sort of the second phase, which is the phase of, oh, we do things, we, we have diversity training, but nobody really cared about whether any of the things that were done uh, produced the desired effects. Did they increase the diversity of the workforce? Did they reduce discrimination and prejudice? Did they reduce bias in jury decision-making? Whatever. So much of this was guided by legal 
considerations, actually, companies wanted to protect themselves from anti um, from discrimination lawsuits. And I think this is where sort of the, the third phase started, what I call the diversity science phase. So people more and more started to worry about, are any of the initiatives that we implement, the diversity initiatives, do they produce the desired effects? Are we actually really reducing the achievement gap? Are we really diversifying our workforce? Do we reduce turnover among employees from uh, marginalized groups, et cetera? So uh, this is the phase where we then started uh, what I refer to as doing empirical studies and actually most of the time randomized controlled trials. It's a technical term. Basically, that's what um, people in medicine, drug testing mm -hmm. use. Participants are randomly assigned to either the, the drug condition or the placebo condition. They don't know it. The doctor doesn't know it. And then uh, six months later, 12 months later, uh, outcomes are measured and it's examined whether um, those who receive the actual drug are healthier or their health conditions are better than those in the placebo condition. So this is how we proceed with uh, diversity science. And so basically what diversity science is, it's a discipline that uses rigorous empirical methods to examine what works in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, the goal is to apply that knowledge uh, to a variety of settings, the legal settings, policing, jury decision-making, sentencing, et cetera, be it medical settings, health inequities, uh, life expectancies, doctor treatment of patients of colors, et cetera. It has to do in edu educational settings, um, and students being expelled for, for norm transgressions, for rural transgressions, grades, of course, the achievement gap, opportunity gap, et cetera. It's translated into the world of business with uh, female leadership styles, um, glass ceiling, uh, uh, um, discrimination in hiring, discrimination in, in career advancement, et cetera. So you can imagine it really spans um, all fields uh, of scientific investigation and the the new i think it's a new trend and the university of wisconsin madison recently um created an institute the institute for diversity science uh, to promote exactly that type of research and i think there's a trend going on across the country similar institutes are being created at other universities uh and um i think more and more people are asking for evidence-based insights, evidence-based practices related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I wonder if you can break down what that means in this context. You talk about the different waves, right? And so where I'm thinking about my own lived experiences as a, an employee at counseling services and at academic institutions for many, many years, the context, that second kind of wave of, of diversity training and trying to recognize and, and learn how to talk about it and to talk um, among colleagues about uh, differences and that kind of, of wave, you know, I'm cognizant that I, I feel like they've asked me maybe at the end of, of a training like that, how did it go, basically, or like provide some feedback about how you liked or didn't like the the diversity training that we provided you. It sounds like you're talking about something that is 
quite a bit more um, uh, uh, longitudinal. You're entirely right. I think the standard approach is that at the end of the diversity training workshops, participants complete a short survey and the survey contains questions like, I gained important insights during this workshop. I feel now more confident that I can keep my biases in check. I now feel more confident uh, that I can talk to people from other social groups, et cetera. And then when companies who offer that diversity training, usually for a lot of money, when they are asked, um, well, is your training effective? Does it uh, produce the desired effect? Um, then this is what they show. Yeah, here, look at look at the survey mm -hmm. responses. People said that they gained important insights in the workshop. Well, the problem is that's adorable uh, that people feel that they gained important insights. But for me as a diversity science researcher, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to I want to see, does it produce what we call consequential outcomes or heart outcomes? And when we look at heart outcomes, uh, we look at grades in educational settings and in organizational settings, we look a lot at number of sick days, um, turnover among employees from marginalized groups, but also um, who, uh, um, uh, who has access to leadership position, who becomes managers, how many managers are there in the company and is there a change accordingly? Sometimes we even go in and we observe uh, actual behaviors uh, we may observe group meeting, who interrupts whom in a team meeting, who speaks after whom, who takes somebody else's idea and then elaborates on it, who refers to whose idea. The classical setting is always person A proposes something, maybe a woman, maybe a person of color. Everybody ignores that person. And then later on, Jim, a white person, makes a very similar suggestion or even the same suggestion. And then that suggestion is labeled as Jim's suggestion. And then when everybody talks about Jim's suggestion, right? So this is the classic thing where we might go in and observe actual behavior. Sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes we go in and we uh, limit ourselves to climate, slightly less exciting, but still interesting. And a climate survey, climate and engagement survey. And uh, sometimes we look specifically at the responses from individuals uh, from marginalized groups, because if some particular pro-diversity initiative is effective, we would expect these individuals to report to us that they are less often the target of discrimination, that they have an enhanced sense of belonging, uh, that they should report better uh, physical and mental health and generally, they should evaluate the climate more positively. So instead of having workshops participants tell us that they gained important insight, I think we want to ask the individuals from marginalized groups if they have a better experience um, later, three, six months later, if things have changed for them, if the number of explicit forms of acts of discrimination or maybe indirect forms of discrimination, microaggressions, et cetera, has been reduced. And then we want to look at hard data because in educational settings, uh, let's face it, the outcome is great and the outcome is success. And in, in a college, it's six-year graduation rate. And in a college, it's GPA. And that's what we want to affect. So um, I think the outcomes that people use have changed a little bit from phase two to phase three. Mm -hmm. um, we, we want to look actual, we want to see actual evidence of social change and improvement uh, in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion 
before mm -hmm. we label something as effective, before we label a pro-diversity initiative as effective? I'm imagining the CBT triangle. Um, you know, in my world, I, I see that triangle all the time. I, I don't know if you've seen that before, but I, I trust that as a psychology person yourself, like this is probably familiar, but that like cognitive, emotional and behavioral triangle. And so when I hear you speak, I, I think, wow, we are really in the B. We are really in the action and behaviors, whereas at least as we're talking about the, the surface idea of a diversity training, it feels like we're very much focused on the cognition and the thoughts. Like, how am I thinking about that person? How am I talking? What are the words that I might be either internally having as a dialogue or externalized to another person? Um, and then we haven't even talked about this today, but, you know, the idea of implicit association kind of getting at like that, like feeling or instinctual feeling we might have towards either a group or someone representing a group. Um, and so, you know, I'm imagining that that triangle as we talk thus far, and it's it's a heavy B. But to backtrack a little bit, I'm I'm hearing like the the empirical focus, like we need to have data to support what we're doing. And I know that one of the major critiques that I have heard over the years is that science is too often focused on that empirical basis, that there's a lot that's happening outside of what feels measurable, that, that also science has been long biased against and not even looking at members of marginalized groups, that it's been too white for too long. And to say that, well, we're just going to use the same science or empirical, that my hunch is that to some groups that this might feel like, wow, like we're, we're, we're trying to make a difference, but science is, is it's coming back around to science. And I, I don't know if that even makes sense, but I'm trying to get at this idea of like, I have heard that even the language so strong as to say that it's white supremacist to um, be so science focused, empirical, where's the data focused? Because for those members of marginalized groups, it's felt like we don't have the data. We can't point to the data. It hasn't been collected, but we know it's happening. I agree and I disagree. Um, okay. Where I agree is that for way too long in phase two of the diversity work, we really did not ask members of marginalized groups enough. Uh, very often diversity training facilitators, many of them are white, came in there and just told people what people of color needed, what needed to change for people of color to feel better. And that is simply wrong and then incorrect and therefore ineffective. Uh, when we go in, in any kind of setting, the very first thing we start doing is we convene focus groups of members of marginalized groups and we ask them, tell us what the issues are in this particular organization, in this company, in this educational higher ed institution. And what we want to know is very concretely, what are the things that decrease their sense of belonging? What are the kind of behaviors, uh, situations that um, they feel offense, that they, they feel offended by? What are um, signs of lack of respect that feel them disrespected, excluded, that make them feel not welcome? 
And it is incredibly interesting what they tell us because one of the first insights is that changes from one setting to the next. I may go to the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and what I hear is very different uh, than from a, I don't know, lumber company in Seattle. And mm -hmm. uh, diversity issues are not the same. Some of them are procedural in nature or systemic in nature. Hey, it is unclear how in this company parking lots are being assigned and it feels that certain people have the fancy parking lots that are near the building, whereas I have to walk half a mile in the rain every day mm -hmm. or when it rains. Uh, others say, hey, promotions, bonuses, it's sort of all very obscure uh, how that is attributed. And of course, if anything is obscure, you and me, people immediately start thinking, hey, is that, is that really fair how it's being mm -hmm. done? So one of it has to do with interpersonal, um, maybe it has to do with information flow. Uh, sometimes information circulates, but certain employees are not part of that information flow. They find out too late. Um, they find they don't find out at all. And then actually they can't really do the work that they're doing um, because they're not receiving the relevant uh, information. Sometimes it has to do with people, how people talk to each other when waiting in front of the coffee machine. Uh, Etc. So I would say that diversity issues are not the same from one setting to the next. And the most important part is to ask members of marginalized groups what um, decreases their sense of belonging, what uh, prevents them from developing their full potential, why they are not identified with the company, do they consider leaving, and if they do consider leaving, why, what makes them unhappy, what decreases. And usually we then ask them also, what is good? What Think last time you did feel included. Think last time you did feel respected. You did feel welcome. What did the other person say? What happened? What was the social situation where you think, uh, oh, this things went well? What are the type of behaviors that we should promote, that we should increase, and that therefore would um, um, uh, increase your sense of belonging? So that's the first important thing where I think for way too long, uh, mm -hmm. people who have done diversity work have not asked the people uh, who are concerned, who are the target of discrimination and exclusion, what would have to change for them in order to feel more welcome, more included, and have an enhanced sense of belonging. So that's where I agree with you. Uh, second of all, I mean, data um, are interesting. Um, they're not everything. Sure, I, I, I do prefer, if I have a high response rate, I do prefer um, a climate survey, climate and engagement survey, and I do like looking at the responses from the members of marginalized groups and what they tell me about how they are feeling in this company, because I think that is real data. Um, and if, 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 the, if, especially if these individuals tell me uh, on a five-point scale that there are four with mm -hmm. "I feel welcome" and included, and but in the previous year it was a three, then mm -hmm. things have changed, and I do find uh, that meaningful. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, data are not everything. Data can hide things, big statistics averaged across people. Uh, the fact that it goes better for 80% of, I don't know, Latina and African-American women doesn't could mean that for 20%, it's not going better. And maybe something has to change uh, or the whole concept of intersectionality, right? So for African-American men, it may go better, but for African-American women, it may not. And um, so sometimes data by aggregating uh, uh, um, means by data responses across individuals, we, we may actually lose out important information. This is why we are, and especially surveys have one problem is the response rate. So if I have a, 
a 40, 50% response rate, what conclusions can I really draw from these data? So, which is, I think we need multiple ways of data collection. I think we, we do need these focus groups. We do um, um, need to go out and even later in the process, not just in the initial project, okay? How are things going for you now? Um, to, to tell us what the ongoing problem are. Tell us what became better over the last um, years. So I, I do think that um, focus groups should be um, part of the toolkit of any diversity consultant because um, these types of qualitative data are just as informative as the quantitative data mm -hmm. that we collect in surveys and by looking at, I don't know, achievement gap, grades, employee turnover, et cetera. Um, I do think that data is exciting. I do think that rigorous research examining uh, is important because um, spending, asking employees to take a workshop that is, I don't know, um, 60 hours, um, 20 times three hour workshop, that is quite an investment. And I would like Absolutely. to see some amount of turnover, uh, of change in terms of turnover, in terms of reports of employees from marginalized groups about how they're feeling in the company. And if there's no change whatsoever, I, I'm not sure it's worth it to have a 60 hour workshop. Right, right. Doesn't sound like it would be. I mean, it's a lot of investment of time and money, hiring consultants, hiring folks for to not lead to any change. Yep. That's pretty depressing. Yeah. Um, so I, I hear you talking a little bit about, uh, conversations and research data collection that might be coming from marginalized groups or talking to, to people that, uh, people of color, ethnically diverse or gender diverse. And, and then it sounds like we take that information, that data, and we're, we're looking at a different kind of then target audience within this, this world of diversity science. So I'm curious if you can take us through some of some examples from your research. Sure. Um, I already mentioned before that usually we start out um, trying to understand what the issues are, what are the diversity related issues in this particular setting. And we usually do that by asking members of marginalized groups. We also try to identify uh, in terms of uh, um, behaviors, what they are, do, do procedures need to change, et cetera. We also try to identify who needs to change. So again, and we ask members of marginalized groups. So if you go in a typical factory, so is it is it your colleagues, the blue collar workers? Is it the management? Is it the staff? Is it the middle management? Is it that you don't feel taken care of by the entire company, the top management, the leadership team, et cetera? So we try to understand, okay, who should we target? Uh, if we were to implement a, a diversity initiative here, who should be our target audience? Whose behavior do we want to change? Who do we want to act or judge differently in a particular way? And in what way is that? So that usually tells us um, who we should be targeting because we, whenever we want to implement a diversity initiatives, we do want to have a particular target audience in mind. Trying to change everybody's behavior, take a University of Wisconsin-Madison and 67,000 students, professors and staff, you're not going to change everybody uh, with one pro-diversity initiatives. You want to target your pro-diversity initiatives to a particular target audience. And if there are multiple target audiences who should change, then the goal is to implement multiple initiatives with each specifically, uh, with a specific target audience in mind. So once we have the 
tar- identified the target audience, let's say it's middle management. Um, we try to get uh, uh, individuals who belong to that target audience, and we try to understand what their motivations are and what their what drives them, and what especially what prevents them from doing the things that the members of marginalized groups told us previously would make a difference for them. If it has to do with behavior, how come they're not behaving inclusively? How come uh, they are not including individuals from marginalized groups in social events? I'm thinking of a study we did here at the University of Wisconsin. So how come uh, students of color sit alone in the classroom? How come members of the white, um, um, white students um, don't sit next to them in a small classroom? How come they don't engage them in small conversations? How come they don't invite them along to social events, or at least at a lower uh, percentage? And we asked them, why Why are you doing this? What, what is going on here? What prevents you from doing that? Why are you currently doing that? And what prevents you from, uh, from doing sort of the behavior that would make a difference for members of marginalized groups? And um, it is incredibly interesting uh, what we hear. And, and our goal here is to understand what are the current barriers? What prevents people from engaging in the behavior that I want them to engage in from implementing the procedure or change the system in a way that I want to change it because it makes a difference? But also, what are the benefits that I could highlight? Uh, we know from advertising, from any kind of public health behavior change, we have to highlight what people gain mm-hmm. psychologically, materially, from engaging in the behavior that we want them to engage in. So are there any highlights that are currently not being highlighted that are sort of, um, that people are not aware, but if I highlight them, they say, oh yeah, actually you're right. Um, If I do this, then I gain this and I have that positive experience and I'll make new friends and et cetera. So what we're trying to understand, and again, here we're bringing in focus groups, but usually these are individuals who belong to our target audience. And we try, we ask them, okay, what currently prevents them, prevents you from engaging in these and these behavior or from implementing those and those procedures? And then tell me, are there any benefits that we could highlight in, in a particular campaign? And it is incredibly interesting, for instance, in the study here at the University of Wisconsin, when we asked white students, okay, um, tell us, um, why are you not chatting up? Mm-hmm. other students of color in, in, in your classes, because that was reported to us by these students as something that really affected their well-being. Well, it's interesting what they said. They sort of said, hey, I'm from rural Wisconsin. In my high school, there were very few uh, individuals from marginalized ethnic groups, and um, I, I, I have limited experience. And then I, I did this student orientation, and I was being told that I'm biased, and probably if I open my mouth, um, I'm going to say something offensive without really being aware of it, and uh, I feel insecure, and then if I chat somebody up, but I use the wrong word, I say Latinx instead of Hispanic or vice versa, or I ask the person where they're from, then it's it's a microaggression, and then they might get upset, and and then they may inform the instructor, and then I'm being labeled as a racist. And oh, and there are plenty of other students who sit in the classroom. There are 20 other students I could sit next to. So it, it's just uh, the the path of least resistance is that I sit next to these other people because sitting next to the uh, single uh, Latinx or or African American student, um, I have little to gain and and much to lose if Mm. if i sit next to them and engage them in conversation and i thought that was interesting uh we obviously have to help people navigate these social situations and what their 
displaying, as we the technical term we use is, is intergroup anxiety, um, they feel uncomfortable talking to uh, students from different um, social and ethnic groups. And uh, we found that interesting. So maybe instead of telling them one more time how incredibly biased they are and, and that they cannot control these biases, maybe what these students need really is help and how to navigate these cross-cultural, cross-group conversations. Mm -hmm. What's going through my head, ironically, and, and this speaks to, in some ways, the podcast itself is, you're you seem to be talking about promotion or like mental health promotion in some ways and i i think about this in the context of couples work that i do the couples work that i do you know i have this exercise that i have uh, a couple do on a pretty routine basis and it, it comes from uh, the gottmans which are very popular couples therapists right in the seattle or washington area and and they really highlight how, okay, there's a really common thing that happens between couples where uh, let's say it's a cishet couple and the man goes ahead and says, oh, you're going to wear that for our date tonight. And how, okay, that's the demotion, if you will. That's the like negative feedback. What's the need? What's the positive need? What are we promoting? What would get you closer to that better date or that 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 time with your spouse that's going to feel a little bit more um, enjoyable. And so then it's about, okay, let's let's create a rough draft too here, where you now say to your spouse what you wanted or what you were hoping for, what, what would make it even more fun or enjoyable as a night. And so what I hear, even in these initial thoughts here, Marcus, is this idea of like, what are we promoting? Like, what are people going to get in in being able to have that conversation with that person of color in that classroom? I think you're entirely right. Uh, and I think uh, we talked about phase two and phase three, and I think that's one of the characteristics of phase three as well. I think for years and years and years, the goal, the unique goal was to eliminate discrimination. It was all focused on the negative and how we can eliminate the negative. Mm -hmm. Well, we have now realized that eliminating the negative is not enough. Um, just being fair at hiring decision is not enough to not discriminate in these hiring decisions. And because these employees come in, they stay for three months, six months, and then they leave. Why? Because the workplace climate is not, not inclusive and they don't feel welcome and they don't feel taken care of. So now comes in phase three, and I find that incredibly exciting. I think there is an increasing demand for what we call inclusion. Uh, that is, it is not enough to just not discriminate. It is incredibly important to also promote a positive, welcoming social climate where people feel welcome and respected. So it is, what, as you say, it's that promotion focus. So instead of telling people what not to do, which behaviors to eliminate, we're now trying to encourage people to do certain behavior that they didn't do before. So instead of eliminating behaviors that they currently are doing, our second focus is now getting people to produce behaviors that they didn't produce before or that didn't do mm -hmm. before. And I find that very exciting. And you can imagine uh, that getting people to stop doing behaviors that they're currently doing is a very different psychological process than getting people to do behavior that they're currently not um, doing. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm I entirely it feels like a barrier in some ways or like a, there's a calculus, even as you describe that example of the, the student who is in that classroom sitting there, like it, it feels like there's a 
there's a tension to overcome, like even to get to that promotion, like to, to get to that place of like, wow, the benefits are, are, could be tremendous here for you to be able to connect with people that aren't from your rural Wisconsin town and to be able to have conversations and to know that like, you're going to gain and learn more in the process. But I'm, I'm also thinking, wow, like it, it feels like we're, we're battling a, a tension or a, almost a unconscious mental calculus of like, Oh, this is going to be really difficult to bridge this gap. It's um, it's difficult, but I mean, behavior change is possible, right? I can get people to adopt a certain number of health behaviors, get mammograms on a regular basis, brush brush their teeth. I can people mm-hmm. get people to recycle more. I can get people to drive their car less frequently, and I can get people to stop making discriminatory hiring decision, and I can get them to behave more inclusively. I'm not saying it's easy, but with the right behavior change tools, it is definitely possible. And I think one mistake, uh, I think we've made two mistakes. First of all, we have uniquely focused on the negative. And I think that's wrong. We know from, again, advertising and public health, we need to highlight the benefits. If we cannot tell people what they're gaining, if they adopt the behavior that we want them to adopt, uh, we are probably not going to change uh, their behavior. And there are many things to gain. I mean, we asked students, we did, again, surveys, hey, here are a number of potential benefits, and they actually rated many of them incredibly high. Doing the right thing, uh, contributing to an inclusive uh, campus climate, making new friends, becoming more cultural competent, which might help them later in their careers, getting them ready to work in, in, in teams, diverse teams later on, um, getting mm-hmm. ready for grad school. I mean, there are so many benefits that we can highlight for behaving inclusively. And yet we usually don't do that. We focus um, um, uh, uniquely uh, on the negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find that um, incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, Marcus, I want to shift gears now. Uh, I'm thinking about, as a health service psychologist, that we we work in hospitals, we work in VAs, there are academic centers, do consulting work, public policy, private practice. It's a really diverse kind of career. And so, you know, I'm personally in private practice and I'm I'm thinking about, you know, what does this mean for my practice, my consulting work? How can I take some of this this area of research, this this diversity science? Because I think it's incredibly important and the takeaways are um you know, even individually, I'm thinking about behavioral changes that I can make in our conversation today, or what that might look like. So I'm, I'm curious, how do we encourage more of this within our workplaces or our domains of practice? Sure. Um, I mean, what we do here at the Institute for Diversity Science, I would say, our primary interaction partners are chief diversity officers at large companies, at large educational institutions who come to us and who ask us, what can we do differently? What are the types of pro-diversity initiatives we should be implementing in our organization institution that will make a difference? So a priori, uh, our, our we're 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 not we're interacting less often with individuals who ask us, hey, what can I do in my personal life or in my mm-hmm. professional life with with my colleagues to uh, c- create a more inclusive climate? 
I think uh, it all depends on how big your organization is or, or how many people you're interacting with. I mean, I guess one of the um, um, most beneficial things that, that I've found to work is to just check in with people um, mm -hmm. occasionally, whether it be clients or whether it be colleagues or, or in my case, graduate students, et cetera, is just to find out how are things going for you? Mm -hmm. Am I treating you with the kind of respect that you'd like to be treated? Am I using any terms that you find or expressions that you find offensive or that signal to you that you don't belong here or that um, um, somehow make you feel uncomfortable, right? Also with, I don't know, female grad students every now and then check in and I say, hey, is, mm -hmm. is there anything that I'm doing that you find creepy or that is unpleasant for you? And um, then uh, it, it, it would be interesting to also it, it sometimes, I mean, I do that and it's going incredibly well. And I am hoping that the people who work for me and with me are comfortable enough to raise issues in that setting. And, and, and they have, and it, it works fine. Then of course, the very last thing is to want to be defensive, right? I mean, there's only one mm -hmm. possible answer. If ever anybody raises anything to you and that is, I'm incredibly sorry uh, that I feelings and mm -hmm. um, I will make sure that that changes. I mean, the last thing you want to do in this situation is then start to coming up with reasons why you behave like that and why that might be actually acceptable. Anyway, so there's only one answer is, is, is immediately apology and I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. Um, and then uh, the other thing is maybe uh, set up a, a system. So for instance, in my research laboratory, I have four or five graduate students and postdocs, and then I have about 15 to 20 undergraduate research assistants, uh, I make that incredibly clear that there are multiple channels. Um, if they do not feel comfortable talking to me about anything that hurt their feelings or that they found offensive, oh, here are five other things you can do. You can talk to the lab manager. You can talk to the graduate student. The graduate student can raise the issue with me and can either name the undergraduate research assistant by name or that person can remain anonymous. If none of that works, um, here is the director for the undergraduate studies who you can talk to. Here is the person for the uh, uh, women's um, health, the, the, the clinical center, uh, and there's a person who manages that. You can also talk to them. There's a sexual mm -hmm. harassment uh, center on campus. There's also the ombuds uh, office, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Here are all institutions. And I always encourage people, don't let it go. If something makes you feel uncomfortable by anybody in the lab, uh, you have to do something about it because if you feel uncomfortable, that same person will say that a similar thing in the near future and then somebody else will feel uncomfortable. And actually all the studies that show where there's abuse and sexual abuse or, or, or a hostile um, climate um, um, that people hostile and intimidating behavior, et cetera, it usually meant that somebody did something and nobody spoke up and did something about it. And they sort of uh, progressively got worse over the years because there were no checks. So I encourage my students, I said, I don't want to have that lab. If there's something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you have to say something because what you're doing, you're doing it for yourself, but you're, you're also doing it for future individuals who are interacting with me. So it is incredibly important that you do something. So I would say checking in with people occasionally, mm -hmm. having that explicit organization. So if these are people who report to me, I usually do that when I we do the yearly uh, performance reports um, or, um, or with my grad students, they have to fill out forms um, of their 
individual development plan. So usually that is the opportunity where, where I say, okay, now let's stay, take a step back. Let's have a conversation how, how I'm treating you and whether that is going okay. And then setting up channels that people where people can address something that make them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that is very important. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears here as we near the end of our time. I, w- I would love to hear more about the role you're taking on, that executive director role at the Institute of Diversity Science. What happens next? And uh, where where's the research lab going? Oh, thanks for asking. So we are a research institute. Um, um, we, we're going to have affiliate members, and these affiliate members will stay in their home department. So we don't have researchers that we actually recruit, but we will work with researchers who may be in sociology, school of medicine and public health, law school, business school, etc. But uh, our goal is to uh, promote research on topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And especially our goal is to um, create networking opportunities, Mm -hmm. because one of the most fascinating things is I, I I talk to a lot of people and I get to know them and and very often it happened to me but oh you don't you're working on this topic but what don't you know that that this person in in communication arts is working on exactly that topic mm-hmm. uh patient trust towards doctors and how right it's not very high among African-American um, patients etc oh or and oh you are working about this policing and, and you were in sociology you're in the law school sociology, but you don't know each other oh my god so what one of the things is to really get people together and that is primarily focused on at the university of um, madison oh, wisconsin madison but then I, I mentioned that all these other institutes are being slowly created uh, across the country then the goal is of course to have a, a, a network of institutes related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, empirical research on, on that topic, and, and then to connect our researchers to these researchers from the other institutes. So we're going to have a, a visiting scholars program to bring in people. Uh, wow. We're going to seed grant programs, um, and 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 some of it is our goal. We're going to have scientific speed dating events where people talk to each other for four minutes and then they move to the next table and tell each other again about their research. Mm-hmm. So that that is all promoting networking. And then we're going to have other things from writing retreats, writing workshops um, to get the work done, help with um, writing manuscripts, getting the research out, promoting it to the larger public, podcasts, webinars, uh, and then, of course, social media. Promoting research nowadays is just as important. Getting the word out there, what works in the diversity domain is just as important as doing the work. Absolutely. That's so exciting. Um, I love it. And I can't wait to see what comes out of it and uh, what y'all are are working on and facilitating. Just, uh, you know, having been a graduate student to imagine a space where you're able to come together, meet new people from potentially even different institutions or different parts of an institution, and then also work together to, to get publishing. It's a really, really exciting idea. So thank you for sharing it. And Marcus, thank you for more importantly, being here with us for this this time today and your expertise, your experience, I really just so value being able to talk with you about this. And it it really has gotten me thinking about, you know, again, not just within my private practice or the domains that I, I interact with other people, but even in my personal life too. Like, what, what am I doing? How, how can I be more effective at this? That's like kind of the word that's been standing out in my head, even since I heard you speak at, at the conference it was like, What's more or less effective here? 
and how can we get there? Um, so should people want to know more about you, the Brower Group Lab, the Institute of Diversity Science, where can they go? Okay. The webpage is ids.wisc.edu. So Institute for Diversity Science, ids.wisc, like Wisconsin, W-I-S-C.edu. Um, uh, and then just Googling my name, Marcus Brower, M-A-R-K-U-S, last name Brower, B-R-A-U-E-E-R. I, I will be the first hit probably on the on the Google search, if not Marcus Brower, Wisconsin. Um, and uh, yes, we are always interested in hearing. We don't want to be in our ivory tower and do research that's unrelated to the real world. So we, we love hearing from people and we love hearing positive comments, negative comments, suggestions for important research that we should be doing. Uh, we love that because we would like to do socially relevant research and we would like to do research that's uh, going to create a difference and that's going to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here to share it with us. I'm Dr. Samuel Lestgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. <laughs>